This podcast is called Obsessed. Joseph Scrimshaw and his guest get some secrets off their chest. You should listen. It's the best. Hello and welcome to Obsessed with me, Joseph Scrimshaw. I'm sitting in my home with the other person who lives in this home and is the other person on this podcast. It's Sarah Scrimshaw. Hello. Hello. Instead of how are you, which I no longer ask, this episode of the podcast, I'm going to ask you, do you think vampires would be good drivers? Mm. Um, no, <laughs> I don't. Sorry. It kind of sounded, sometimes I surprise you with the questions. I hadn't asked you that question before, but you didn't sound at all surprised by it. And I don't know <laughs> if that's just you're uh, used to me as a human, or it sounded a little bit like you'd thought about this before and you had a strong opinion and you were <laughs> a little reluctant to share it. Um, I had not thought about it before. That's why there's a little little bit of a pause there. But it um, it did not surprise me as a question, which is weird. I, I mean, we're getting close to Halloween. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like any conversation at any point can suddenly turn to vampires. Fair game. <laughs> now, why do you think that vampires would be bad drivers? Well, so here I was going to see that I paused because I was going to add caveats. Well, feel free. So I'm going to add them now. So I was thinking that they, you know, if they're on a on a hunt, on a pursuit of blood, they'll be bad drivers because they'll be really impatient. And they'll be those drivers that are like weaving in and out and suddenly doing a U-turn in front of you when it is not a place to be doing a U-turn in front of you. So I just was kind of thinking um, that not going to be the best drivers because of that. That makes a ton of sense. So asked and answered on vampires. Maybe we should move on to our full topic because we could talk <laughs> about vampires for hours on end. Uh, we are going to be talking about the new movie, Dune, part one. There's an old movie called Dune and there are a couple of television shows, a miniseries called Dune, but this is Dune, part one. Uh, we often start with caveats. Uh, we had some vampire caveats almost, but we're going to have some real Dune caveats. Uh, neither of us are Dune experts by any means. We are just talking about a cultural zeitgeist thing. We watched the movie. We enjoyed it. Uh, I myself have seen David Lynch's Dune once many years ago, and then I just recently watched it uh, while I was recovering from my second uh, vaccine shot, which was a great time to watch a <laughs> dreamy film about a sleeper awakening. Um, so... I'm familiar with David Lynch's version, uh, and there are some scenes uh, in ideas and lines that I know from general pop culture, like some specific lines I have known and have in my head for years because I did uh, a geek sketch show where my friend wrote a bunch of Dune jokes, and I hadn't seen the film yet, and he's like, cool, in the box there is pain, great. <laughs> uh, so some of it is, I feel like I know a little bit more about Dune from just general uh, pop culture uh, osmosis, mm -hmm. and then being familiar with the loon, the, the Dune version or the Lynch version, the Loon version. Uh, but I'm again not a super expert. Um, and then the other thing that I wanted to talk about at the beginning, because you can help me with this, is the director of this new version of Dune, Dune Part One, uh, is French Canadian. So a lot of people say his name wrong. Like me, I have said his name wrong many, many times. And for this podcast, I was like, I should figure out how to say it correctly. Uh, oh. So uh, it, it, I tried to write it out phonetically. It is uh, Denis Villeneuve. Okay. Uh, that was probably more a bad uh, French impression than accurate pronunciation. How would you say that? I wrote down his actual name. How would you say that you know French? Yeah. Um. I mean, I have also said his name wrong for many years. So my own caveat. I would say Denis Villeneuve. 
There we go. Maybe. That's what the French woman on the YouTube video I watched. It was, it was a very, <laughs> I googled pronunciation, and sometimes it can be hard to find it, uh, but it was this very patient uh, French woman who's like, I've watched many of your YouTube videos where you talk about movies, and I'm sure you mean well, but none of you are saying this man's name correctly. Wow, so it was specifically <laughs> about this. It, that's yes. amazing. Yes. And is that kind of how, because the, one of the things I find with names is names aren't always, like you can't always tell from how it's spelled, how it's supposed to be pronounced. Yeah. So I, with a name, always want to hear somebody say it, n- not just guess or think that at least not think I'm right if I guess. Yeah. So that's, fa- is that close to what she said? Oh yeah. Yours okay. is much, much closer. I wrote it out phonetically and it's like, I am, I am not good at you know, actually making some of the sounds that are of the French language. And you are because you have <laughs> had experience. So now that we've learned to say this artist's name correctly, I'll probably not say it a lot, but you should feel free to say it as much <laughs> as you can. because You can say it than I, better than I. Uh, so let's get into discussing this after our caveats. Did you have any other caveats? Uh, I actually do. It's in addition Ooh. to one of your caveats, which is that I have seen nothing. Other than this movie, <laughs> I have not seen any previous version. I have not read the book. I'm very aware of Dune. And it's one of those things. It's like, I'm very, very aware that this exists and is a thing that someday I'll get around to reading or seeing or learning more about. And that day was when we watched this movie. <laughs> so that was actually my very first question about, I know I'm that sorry. you've never, no, that's fine. That's fine. Uh, I have a thing I want to ask in connection to it. What, if anything, did you know, like through co- co- uh, cultural osmosis? Uh, very little. And I think I combined a few movies together. So I knew some, I suspected some things that were not accurate. Um, no, honestly. Like what? I'm very curious. Were you like waiting for a clown to show up? Did you think there was a clown in this movie? You're like, what kind of thing? I think I combined it with the book Holes. <laughs> Because of the worms? Did you know about the worms? Maybe that's where it came from. I think maybe I'd heard people talk about the worms. And, <laughs> so, then, and where do worms come? Holes. Holes. Yeah. I don't. But it like it had gone no no further than that. Like it wasn't like I had a whole you know headcanon about what this movie actually was. I knew next to nothing about it. In fact, when we saw a trailer for it, I had that like oh. Well, this is a totally different movie from what I thought. <laughs> without truly having a good idea of what I thought. I, th- I think I just had like visions of dusty Mars and I don't know. Okay. I just, I, I did not <laughs> know what it was about. Okay. So you're going in as a blank slate, which is a part of what makes this conversation uh, really fun and interesting. So did you have any preconceived notions going into it? You combined the book Dune and Holes. Then you had seen the trailer. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you have any sort of like, this is what I'm expecting or this is what I'm wanting from this experience? Um, yeah, you know, I was very curious to see it because um, and wanting to be like, OK, well, what is this movie? What is this um, this property? And people talk about it both a lot. And also then it will go years with nobody talking about it I, or maybe <laughs> just the people I'm around. Um, so I was just I was very curious about it. I um, it's got an amazing cast. So that I'll be honest, was a big draw for me. Yeah. Um as I told you, if I may share. Oh, please. <laughs> like, yes, I want to see the movie with all the people with beautiful eyes. <laughs> That's right. Because we had been thinking about, we got to see that sometime. And we were trying to decide what to watch the other night. And I was like, Dune is just available on HBO Max. And you're like, 
the movie with all the people with the beautiful eyes? Let's watch that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is. It's pretty fascinating because Dune itself has its own storied history as a book in the different adaptations, in the, the peaks and valleys and cultural discussion about it based on when an adaptation is being made. Uh, but then this new one has this additional baggage of we're in this space now where all of these actors are, you can absolutely know them as actors and follow them as actors. But they're also like uh, symbols of specific pop culture mm-hmm. characters, right? Like I even saw people making the joke of like, look, uh, hey, uh, Paul Atreides is going to get a lot of help uh, from Poe Dameron and Aquaman. Uh, and eventually he's going to meet, maybe meet Mary Jane in the desert. Like it's so <laughs> it's such a weird experience. And mm-hmm. I think you and I uh, both laughed when Oscar Isaac talked about I wanted to be a pilot. Yeah. It's hard not to, right? It's hard it to is. divorce some of that other cultural knowledge yeah. and just concentrate on the culture you're watching right now. Yeah. I mean, that to me was just kind of a fun, like, oh, well, that was really nice. <laughs> in another world, in another galaxy, you did get to be a pilot, the right? best pilot in the resistance. Uh, so then you had some preconceived notions that you were going to see people with beautiful eyes, and that was about it. What was your overall reaction? Did you feel... I, I imagine you felt satisfied on Beautiful Eyes. I did feel satisfied on that. But beyond that, what was your overall reaction? Um, You know what? I I really enjoyed it. <laughs> Good, because you're like, it was garbage and wasted my time. <laughs> be a short podcast. Yeah, I would have warned you. I, I feel <laughs> like there would be... Um, that's That's part of... Part of our relationship is fair warning, not dropping things like that in the middle of the podcast. <laughs> Goodbye. Um, no, I really enjoyed it. And in fact, I enjoyed it more than I expected to, mm. which is not that I didn't expect to enjoy it. But I I just I really was so uncertain. And sometimes, especially in the evening when we're at home, I can get very tired. Yeah. And I was just a little nervous, not even because of the movie, but just because of who I am and not getting enough sleep lately that I would get sleepy but I it engaged my intention the entire time I mean that's such a horrible comment that's like the base the lighting was nice the lighting was nice um but I um sorry I'm just kind of rambling but I really enjoyed the story of it more than I expected to okay especially based on the trailers right because I I knew it was based on a book so and maybe the little pieces that fell into my brain that were not about worms I maybe knew it was like had an interesting story and I felt like that was unfolded in an interesting way. And because I had seen the trailers for this, there are a few moments of like, okay, well, I know a little bit of what might be coming. But then um, the action scenes were very, very fun and interesting, but they they weren't uh, necessarily the dominant force in the movie, yeah. which I appreciated because I wasn't sure what would be the dominating um, kind of image and uh, experience of the movie. Yeah, no, and a lot of the reviews and a lot of the discussions that if you ever heard anything or saw anything on social media has been about like it's so beautiful, you know, the the visual world building is so amazing. So yeah, I can see how you go you go into it going, great, I'm kind of expecting that, but what's the story and mm-hmm. how much of an action movie is this? How much <laughs> blowing up is there going to be? Yeah, and you were really engaged by the story itself as mm-hmm. well as all of the. The beautiful shots and the beautiful eyes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Yeah. I think uh, for myself, I was really intrigued to see how similar and how different it, it was to David Lynch's film, having watched it recently and seen mm-hmm. a lot of back and forth on social media about that. Yeah. Um, 
And I thought it was yeah, absolutely visually stunning. I thought the acting was great. I thought in terms of the story, um, it was the beginning was structured very, very well to make us care about the the Freeman and to sort of frame it as uh, they live on this planet in this resource is being, you know, plundered by aggressive, not great people. And then also to really uh, uh, firmly start us from Paul's position of feeling overwhelmed with all of the various things he is supposed to be and inherit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought those emotional hooks were really, really good to make it about the story as well as uh, all of the the beauty and the, you know, dense world building. Um, but I, th- I just really liked that it was the word that just kept coming to my mind is this movie is dreamy. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the people who love it are like, yeah, <laughs> there's action and everything. But it all just kind of slows down and it lets you, you know, just enjoy the gorgeous shots and it slowly draws you into the world. And then the people who are like, this movie's too slow, uh, not enough happens and it isn't even a whole story. What the hell's part one about? I feel like those people are reacting negatively to the fact that it's dreamy and people who love it are reacting positively to the fact that it's dreamy, mm-hmm. uh, in my opinion. And I, it's so similar to Lynch in that way. Mm. In a lot of uh, this director's work, whose name you can say. Those Villeneuve. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I surprised you with that. A lot of his work also has a sort of dreamy, lynching quality. But I was really surprised that it was like, wow, like actual uh, narrative choices of what do we emphasize? How do we emphasize it? How do we play this scene? Some scenes were very similar. But that overall idea that this story that people who approach this book say that this story it feels right that it's a little dreamy and that really made sense to me and and I was really engaged by that because I feel like it so many of the big ideas are about like there's all this uh, machinery and there's all this pressure and there's also this possibility of but what if there's something more and what if instead of rigid and controlling what if things are about letting go? Hmm. You know, there's so much about that, that the, the freemen live in harmony uh, with the desert. Uh, the great conversation that Paul has with his father of like, well, you don't have to go to leadership in a straight line. Just follow your path and maybe you'll get there. And, you know, later in the film, when Paul has that sort of epiphany of like, we're only going to get through this storm if, if I stop fighting it in mm-hmm. the the thopter in the ship and, and flow with it. You know, so to me, it's one of those things where the the style of the story, storytelling helps tell the story mm-hmm. of Paul is accepting more of this idea of letting go and being in harmony. Yeah. So, yeah. I love that description of it being dreamlike. And I, I completely agree with what you're saying, that it does really mesh well with the story it's telling. Yeah. Did you like did you like the dreamy tone? Did it make you sleepy at all? We were we it is a long movie and we were at home. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, for the most part, no, I, I did really like the movie. No, it didn't really make me that sleepy. I don't think that I thought about it at the time as something that's dreamy. But when you're saying that now, I, I, I'm like, oh yeah, that is kind of what that was. Yeah. But I didn't have, like, I wasn't sitting there watching it going, Ooh, I like how dreamy this is. (laughs) And dreamy is my word and maybe a weird word. And maybe other people would be like, that's not the word I would use at all. So I respect that. Last thing for me is. You know, one of the things Lynch's film got hacked to bits and re-edited and, and more voiceovers added and all this all this stuff. Uh, 
But part of it is Dune's a really hard book to adapt because it's incredibly dense with exposition. And I, I was just kind of tickled that this was also a movie where just like, uh, well, here's an early scene where the main character uh, listens to the audiobook of the Wikipedia entry on something because <laughs> he has to know, and so does the audience. You mm-hmm. have to know this information, and so listen to a Wikipedia entry. There's something refreshing to me about that because writers can just uh, tie themselves into knots with no exposition, or it has to be kind of hidden so the audience isn't even aware that uh, they're receiving exposition. And I think we get a little overly obsessed with exposition is bad. So for me, it was really fun to just watch a movie where a main character sits down and listens to the exposition with us. Yeah, I thought it was great. And I didn't really notice that that's what I was doing. So, <laughs> so you're engaged with the story. I was engaged with the story, the hidden print plain sight, and at least for me, it worked. Yeah, awesome. So I, I meant to mostly talk about kind of some big picture stuff there, but I also really wanted to ask you, you said the story was compelling to you. What about the story hooked you who did you care about what were you hoping to happen what were you afraid is going to happen that kind of thing yeah yeah I think um a few things one starting with what you mentioned earlier about the early part of the film um where it did hook you on the people who are from the planet and their their experience of their planet that then is being uh in other people are taking things from their planet (laughs) and taking things from them and killing them in the process. So it hooks you in with them, but also with the way that, you know, we're really told the story through the perspective of Paul of that idea of kind of why are people, why are different groups sent to war Mm -hmm. and who is sent and why, and who is sending them and who gets, who gains, who loses kind of all of the, politics and machinations of moving humanity around the galaxy or universe like chess pieces in a game and what are the consequences of that both to the individuals and to the overall um, people within a group and also who's moving things and for what reasons. Man, that is great. I think that's (laughs) wonderful because I think that is what is compelling on the macro level of it is this uh, big... uh, I was going to say geopolitical, multiple geos, yeah. <laughs> interstellar uh, political, you know, interfamily, this giant story of politics and economy and greed. Um, but then on a human level, our main character is reflecting that of like, I am just a kid and I am meant to be the leader of this house. I am being trained as a fighter. I'm being trained as a mentat, which is a thing that they weren't as clear on in the movie mm-hmm. um being trained in the these uh kind of supernatural arts uh and maybe and maybe i'm supposed to be a messiah just like the um, insane amount of pressure <laughs> on paul really goes to what you're saying about it it is all about how how are you retaining your humanity when you're kind of a part of a rigid chess game mm-hmm yeah. And then, yeah, it makes sense that he would be looking for ways to break out of that. Yeah, yeah, both with him and then I just felt like all of that came up a lot with, uh, I don't know, that was kind of what stood out to me. Yeah. And what I w- found myself thinking about both while I was watching it and also a lot since watching it. Yeah, I think that's what's powerful to me is uh, 
it is definitely like very science fiction. It's, you know, they go to a big world with uh, sandworms and need to learn to <laughs> walk in very fun ways, you know, in order to avoid the sandworms. And they have the still suits and there's just like it's kind of ridiculously dense with like terms, uh, but it's still so grounded in like these very weighty ideas that you could, you know, really dig into just in, in the story, but also apply to so many things in our real world, good, bad, and otherwise, right? About like, you know, inheritance and destiny and uh, rigidity versus letting go and facing fear. And is that, you know, can you, you know, cleanse yourself of fear entirely? And what happens, like all these kind of very, very big ideas. And then it's also like, uh, but we have shields. <laughs> we have mm-hmm. body shields <laughs> and, uh, and big worms everywhere and thopters, uh, which is one of the other big things I like, thopters. The ships. Yep. <laughs> I found those yeah, compelling. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so I wanted to talk about uh, relatively early on here in our podcast. Um, there's always a lot of Star Wars comparison. And Dune and Star Wars have a, a fascinating uh, relationship with one another because there are uh, similarities. And, and Lucas has never uh, tried to obscure it in any way. Uh, obviously, Star Wars has a ton of influences that people are well aware of, of Kurosawa and, you know, Joseph Campbell myth and Flash Gordon in particular, but B-movie adventure serials in general and Westerns and on and on and on. Uh, but Lucas was influenced by the novel. And if you're watching Dune and Star Wars with that in mind, there are like many connections. There's the the idea of chosen ones like Paul is mm-hmm. perhaps a, a chosen run. Uh, there is corrupt and violent governments motivating a lot of the pot, plot. The uh, B'nai Jesseret are a spiritual group with powers, kind of like the Jedi. Uh, they have this voice command power like the Jedi mind trick. Uh, there's a sand planet. Spice is also a drug in Star Wars. Uh, overall themes of control versus letting go, this huge focus on fear being an obstacle to an enlightenment and kind of on and on and on, both on the sort of thematic level and on the aesthetic level, there are also all these connections. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes people, uh, like these are actual social media things I've said, we're like, oh, so, so Star Wars is just Dune and George Lucas just ripped it off. And like, well, he, in, he took many inspirations from it, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's that sort of from Dune to Star Wars Genesis. And then a lot of the history of the 1984 Dune movie is people trying to make Dune be Star Wars. <laughs> and <laughs> right. it didn't happen for lots of reasons. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that. But in particular, just get your outside perspective, having just uh, seen Dune. Did you think about Star Wars at all when you were watching it? Were you like, oh, Spice. Oh, <laughs> Sand Planet. Oh, a giant worm. That's just like the Exegirth in Empire Strikes Back. Like, were you distracted at all by Star Wars comparison while watching? Um, f- with Spice, I'll be honest, yes. Okay. That was the big one. And I think especially because, um, you know, that it's such a big thing by the end. And like, oh, Poe Dameron was a Spice runner. And now you've got <laughs> Oscar Isaac in this movie also. So I think, so the Spice... Just because it it's both a generic t- term, but also a very specific term now within those uh, two films um, or properties. So that was the main one. I feel like a lot of the other comparisons, you know, I, I maybe it's just the way that I approach things, but I, I tend, if something pulls me out, I'll think about it at the time. But otherwise, when I'm watching something, I'm watching that thing and not necessarily thinking about it until afterward of like, oh, well, this relates to this and this relates to this. The spice pulled me out just a little bit. 
Um, but the other things don't. And I feel like, at least for me, a lot of them are are bigger, bigger picture items, a little bit more thematic. And um, I think it's always, I just, if I can jump into this for a second, I think it's always hard when you have something like Star Wars that Dune was one of the influences of Star Wars. And then when you have something that has been um, attributed as being one of the source inspirations for something that is wildly popular, like obviously Star Wars was and is, but then when people become aware of the source material later, then there's that like, but wait, this is just like, this is whipping out this or this is, and like in both directions. And I feel like it's always uh, like everybody just needs to take a moment and breathe and think because, but I feel like there is that knee jerk gut reaction. That's just instinctual to us to just be like, wait, what? And whether it's <laughs> Dune ripped off Star Wars or Star Wars ripped off Dune. And like, but then when you stop and think about it, you're like, oh no, it's, it's one of the influences. It was acknowledged as an influence. We're just, seeing it after the fact so we some of the influences are really getting pulled out because we have that knowledge already and um you know so yeah i'm kind of yeah no train there but i I just i feel like that's always can be a little bit harder to see to see some of the inspiration material after the thing that was inspired by it yeah what i hear you saying uh, is to kind of looking at things with a perspective of history uh, in their actual linear order rather than our sort of Rather than our order of uh, encountering them, what was their actual linear order of creation? Yeah. And that gives you a little bit more perspective, I think. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's, it, I mean, I love seeing seeing things, reading things, listening to things. I mean, it happens all the time with music where you fi- have something that you like, you find out what were some of the inspirations for it, and then you go and watch them, read them, listen to them, and sometimes it's like, oh, yeah, I can absolutely see where this is connected. Um, I feel like we both felt that way when we watched uh, Seven Samurai. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, and so I and for this as well. But I feel like there's um, sometimes it's very nuanced. Sometimes you can absolutely see it. But I feel like it's a relief. It's something I enjoy Mm -hmm. after the fact to kind of inform like, oh, these are some of the things that informed the creation of this other thing that I really like. Yeah, yeah. I feel the same way. I, I was really fascinated re-watching uh, the David Lynch Dune mm-hmm. and kind of going through this thought process. And then, you know, I was affected by it again when I was watching Dune Part 1 and wondering how much of a stir it may or may not create. And I think for me, at the end of the day, I feel like Lucas was influenced by many things, uh, some of them almost... Like the the surface level things, like spice, mm-hmm. like a nod <laughs> to something mm-hmm. he liked. Spice wasn't a huge plot device in in the original trilogy. It was no. just a thing that got built on. Um, the you know Jedi mind trick being similar to the voice. Like okay, that's the, these are these are surface level things. I feel like almost everything else that is connected are big thematic ideas that Frank Herbert nor George Lucas invented at all yeah, right that exactly many other creators many other cultures uh across the globe have been very interested about in the idea of rigidity versus letting go and you know will you access a deeper power by being in harmony with your spiritual self or with a power larger than you and corrupt governments lead to your great decision of what you know what is it like to be a human in the middle of this these rigid machinations like these are not things that those two men were like we're the only one (laughs) who thought of those you know i i i think for me 
I really appreciate having to spend a lot of time with Star Wars in the last, well, my whole life, but in the last like six years doing this Star Wars podcast for Center. Of I love some of these ideas in Star Wars, not because they're entirely unique to Star Wars, but because they are packaged in a way that made me really engage with these ideas. And now I see them everywhere. Mm. Like Lynch and Lucas in some ways could not be farther apart, but their thematic stuff is like, you are you 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 guys are interested in the exact same things and you tell them in a massively different way. And mm. I feel that that way about Dune. And I almost feel like what's fascinating to me about it is is there's almost this meta real world thing of like uh, your great theme of big, powerful, rigid forces, you know, moving humanity around. Mm. There's enough on the surface of Dune that looks like it could be Star Wars to companies that want to make a lot of money. <laughs> so particularly when Lynch's got made in 84, like you can see how somebody would go like, well, what? This one's got weird ships, <laughs> right? Uh, and and big monsters. We could sell a lot of toys. Weird ships, big monsters. Oh, they talk about fear. Great. Oh, Star Wars talks about fear too. Let's go. Let money, money, money. And it's. I think the key difference is that Star Wars is a mix of a bunch of in- existing things, then just remixed into something that was new. And one of the huge ingredients that I don't think is super there in Dune is the adventure serial. Mm-hmm. Like Star Wars wants to be about big mythic ideas and big government ideas the same way that Dune is. But then it also wants to like call Chewie a walking carpet <laughs> and it wants to kind of poke fun at itself for having laser swords. And, and, it, and it wants to make sure that it's also like a roller coaster. In that you don't go too long without a big fun action scene in quips, and Dune is that's what the Dune's dreamy. I just feel like Dune is like yeah no when there when there's action there's action when there has to be, mm-hmm. but it's not to be thrilling. It's because that's what Duncan Idaho has to do now. It's not to be an adventure serial, you know. It's not mm-hmm. to be I don't know. Does that make any sense? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm completely um, agreeing with, with everything that you have said, both about some of the big themes not being specific to either franchise <laughs> um, in any way. Um, but yeah, I think absolutely that there is a different, um, a different energy to Star Wars. I, I feel like they're very different. They have some similar DNA, but they're very different. Yeah. Yeah, and that it was just really powerful for me to have watched the Lynch version recently and then watch this one again. And there are many differences, but that tone that is not Star Warsy of this sort of dreamy other world. There's a darkness and, and Paul and a lot of the other characters are caught in it and they're kind of reaching out for some way out. And it's just it's so the tone is so different. And that's what makes Dune unique and great. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh so Moving on, Dune 2 is now confirmed to be coming out in October 2023, uh, but that was conditional on the success of this first film's release. So at the time that we were watching Dune Part 1, there might never have been a Part 2. And In fact, I don't think you knew. You sat down to watch, and it said Dune on screen, Part 1. And I think you said, ooh, Part 1, out loud. (laughs) I did. (laughs) So how do you feel about that, that idea of sitting down to watch a 
massive blockbuster that everybody's talking about. And then it says part one, and you didn't even know it was going to be a part one. Yeah. Um, well, and then and then to find out afterward that it was not even confirmed that part two was happening. In fact, I didn't know until you just said it right now that part two was confirmed. Yeah, and it just so, happened yesterday as we were recording. Okay. Um, yeah, so I, I mean, I find it kind of fascinating. We're in such a interesting time right now with how things get made and do things get made as a standalone but then you actually want it to have some additional life so then you make it be a you know a trilogy instead or it's you know a limited series but we're gonna make six in a row of the same thing limited series like we're just in such a fascinating time of exploration I feel like in terms of story and what is told how things are told how they get continued, if they get continued. So it almost feels like this is, of course, this needs to be in that playground of all of the different things. If we have movies that are intended to be standalones that then suddenly have to become franchises, (laughs) absolutely we should have a movie that should be multiple parts and maybe we only get one. Like I just kind of feel like this is that's life. And what a great way to be like, yeah, we're just going to see what happens. Yeah. I mean, that. I say that now if we start doing this a lot, it would get really annoying and I'm sure very frustrating for some of the characters and like wanting to know if they're going to be able to the complete actors? the story. The actors, um, sorry. <laughs> you know, <laughs> It is very frustrating for Duncan Idaho. The characters, they don't know if they get to come back. They're just like put in the little boxes where they live, right? In Poor Space movies. Aquaman doesn't know if he gets to do a part two. <laughs> exactly. Um, yes, sorry. The creators is what I meant oh, to say. Uh, so like all the people working on it, not knowing if they'll get to finish their story or not. And I mean, I'm sure that affected some of the decisions of where do you leave it? How do you leave it? All of those things. Um, I, I just I find it kind of fascinating as long as it doesn't become the new norm. Yeah, I'm so there with you on the fascinating. When I was thinking about it, uh, about this question, I was like, it's kind of outrageous, right? Because like either invest in it or don't. But then also like, yeah, I get it. It's incredibly expensive. But the incredibly expensive part of it is like, okay, it, it, then if it flops great you don't want to do that again but also like but, they, but you already invested all that money for an incomplete story <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know right? it, so it is really fascinating time because it is just it, and obviously with the the warner brothers choice to do the the mixed theater and home release it's a weird time uh because of that but i found myself thinking about it the way you are of like uh when i first had some like well, how could you do a part one without having a part two like well that's my morning Every day is I have a part one and I don't know what part two is going to be. Could not happen every day. <laughs> and then it started to make it think, you know, make me really appreciate uh, the director that, uh, you know, one of the infamous things with Lynch's film is, you know, part of the reason they took final cut away from him is it was too long. And, you know, Lynch is always going to tend toward the long, mm. uh, but he's trying to adapt the whole book in one movie. Yeah. And they so wanted it to be like, we're going to sell the thopters and the action figures uh, that they needed it to be compact. So that's one of the criticisms always is that it rushes through the story. Mm-hmm. Even It's too long and it rushes through the story. So this director, <laughs> I'll try to say his name, uh, Denis Villeneuve, uh, I think wisely is like, sure, I'd love to take a crack at Dune. I'm not trying to do it in one movie. That's bonkers. So I will do, so I th- he said on uh, an interview, is like, so I said, okay, I'll do it in two movies. And they're like, cool. Uh, let's do the first one and see how it goes. And that's what it was up till a day ago wow. as we 
uh, record. So then when I really thought about it from his perspective, it was like, here is somebody who's kind of living up to some of the material in the story of he is letting fear pass through him, <laughs> right? Right. He is letting go and saying, I will let, you know, uh, other powers take me where I need to be and I will not try to overly control this situation. Yeah. Yeah. I really admire him for taking that on for if that was his approach, which I mean, I don't know what happens in part two. I'm very excited to not find out until I see the movie. It's so fascinating. I'm trying not to slip. It's so great. Because <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah, because most conversations that you'll have with people about this are like, yeah, well, they should have got to this or they didn't say this yet. And of course, you know, that was there because blah, blah, blah. And like, I, I have this this instinct to protect you now <laughs> when we're going to hang out with other nerds and be like, she has the great gift of she doesn't know how it ends. She doesn't know what happens next. It's yeah. so cool. I, I, I will be loud and proud about that <laughs> and or just not notice that I'm hearing spoilers because that's the beautiful thing. And sometimes you don't know that you're hearing a spoiler. That's true. There, some of the, the terms are very dense in dune so somebody could tell you exactly what happens and you'd be like i only recognize five of those words so i don't know what you're talking about another word comes back great (laughs) exactly so i want to talk a few of the the big ideas the details let's talk spice so spice or melange uh does many things it can prolong life uh fuel visions uh and it heightens perceptions which is absolutely necessary uh for the sentient navigators to accomplish interstellar travel so it is a super duper resource that is needed for many things Uh, but it is only available on one planet arrakis so it's controlled by the powers that be and the inhabitants the freemen wage resistance Uh, so that is a big part of i think of the appeal of dune like that is the starting point narratively this this kind of big world building picture this kind of analogy Mm -hmm. for lots of different economic and resource realities for you what was that appealing what what part of that specific idea of everybody wants this one thing and it's on this one planet oh my gosh i mean that i guess i think um i mean to me in some ways that's just kind of how life is boiled down in my brain these days (laughs) is it just it felt like a microcosm of a lot of life right there on the screen yeah um of that it's very important to the people who live there uh for one set of reasons but then other people want it you know for for profit but also to achieve something that they've gotten used to and um you know like i don't know when the original book was written um, i believe 69 i could be wrong i will yeah go for it yeah we'll we'll use that for now um no i just i i found that absolutely fascinating and just kind of one of those core types of ideas that i think about a lot just in general yeah go ahead that that was oh, okay that was, that was the <laughs> end i was ending on and up uh is there any particular real world thing that you connect to i know you are always aware of climate in the climate crisis mm-hmm. did you did you connect to that at all oh uh yes entirely <laughs> um but not just that i feel like you know there's so often something that is important to the people around it you know we we live on this planet for right now at least <laughs> as far as i know um but you know like regionally like there'll often be something that's very important to people from an area f- for a reason that isn't necessarily um that is different from why it might be valuable 
um, in the grander scheme. And I'm not, I can't think of a good example right now. So this is a horribly vague way of talking yeah. about this, but it just, it feels, um, it, it feels like such a relatable idea. I think yeah. that's what it comes boiled down to me is it feels so relatable that it's a, a product that's so needed. It's a getting it is ruining these people's homes. So there's absolutely the environmental connection getting it and who's in charge of it and who's making money from it is such a you know and the wars that are fought over it and who profits is such a daily life news looking around you <laughs> like kind of what we're looking at all the time yeah that i just feel like um on so many different levels it was uh it captured me right away yeah uh I, 65 1965 is the uh, first novel uh my apologies for that mistake yeah, no, I, I'm so with you. I, I think I just think about it of a lot of the battles about any natural resource. And also this specific kind of idea of, like you said, it can be valued in different ways. Like the, the picture to me is that the, the Freeman are valuing it for sort of its inherent properties and it is built into their belief system and their culture and their way of life. Uh, and for other people, it's just dollar sign, dollar sign, dollar sign. So it's like, for me, like trees, you know, lumber, like there's plenty of cultures. They're like, Hey, a, a tree is, uh, valuable for its inherent <laughs> existence. And mm -hmm. other people going like, but we can turn it into, to lumber, which we don't actually care about lumber. It's that lumber becomes money. Yeah. Right? And at least I have never read the book, at least in both films, there's never any, to the to the space travel of like, but if we can't travel in space, then we'll be disconnected from the ones we love. Or you know, it it's all for me in the, in the the film versions, just the greed. Like, I, I, like there's a part of me that shrivels when it's like, okay, there's a super valuable thing and it's only one source. And I'm like, oh no, well that source is screwed, right? Because greedy right. people come from it. But then you're like, but it's for for travel. Like, oh okay, uh, oh and it can prolong life. Like. All of these sort of these perspectives that come from a rigid need to control, like it's financially valuable. It'll make it so I can go places and take more things. It'll make it so I don't die. And I like a part of me shrivels and just like, oh, the people on that planet are so screwed. Right. It just like, has that emotional reaction to me. I think that is one of the huge, huge hooks of just kind of that truth of a lot of our own world history and culture torn bear it's it's yeah. like like we're gonna start this story by saying uh there is one can of beans and uh it it belongs to debbie <laughs> but it's in a room full of 87 people who haven't had food for three days you're like oh debbie <laughs> it's yeah 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 right that's that makes so much sense that it would make you shrivel. I totally understand that. And um, I just have to say, I'm thrilled that you brought up trees before I did. Look at that. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm trying to, to uh, I'll, I'll let you say nuance first. How about that? <laughs> Next time. <laughs> <laughs> Next time. Uh, so along with the spice and the reality of Arrakis, uh, let's talk a fun thing. Let's talk still suits. Yeah. Uh, so the the still suits are uh, the technology that uh, allows people to function in the desert because it recycles all of your fluids. Uh, 
would you ever want to wear one and what would you do if you got to wear one um yeah i absolutely i would be that would be fascinated to wear one i would wear one to go walking in the desert yeah i mean it's already got a purpose (laughs) (laughs) why not try it with its given purpose first so this is a, a thing i saw discussed on social media was it clear to you how the still suit functioned from this film um, it was clear to me exactly what you just said, that it takes your sweat and recycles it into water that you can drink. Okay. Here's the thing. <laughs> Here's the debate. It takes your pee and poo, too. No, I assumed. But okay, they okay. didn't say that, but I was assuming. It takes whatever your body puts out right. and makes it back into consumables. Oh, so you're just trying to be polite by saying just your sweat. Yeah, I, we, as is I sweat said, your sweat. catch-all for everything the body produces? No, what a weird catch-all that would be. Then I'm like, yes, I'm a, I am a person who tends to sweat. Like, what am I actually I saying? I need to go to the bathroom and sweat for a moment. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> Sorry. No, I had that moment as I was saying that because I knew that, that it had specifically said sweat. And I couldn't remember if it had specifically said everything else or not. So I just was being vague. Well, yeah. I guess I was, no, I wasn't being vague. I was being specific and specifically omitting things. You were specifically omitting things. Yeah. And that was a thing I saw as funny tweets of cowards. <laughs> <laughs> Be more specific about the still suit. And yes. I was just, I, I honestly couldn't remember what was communicated because I think I just sort of filled that in. I, I honestly don't remember if it communicated just sweat or if it kind of indicated urine. I think it might I have did indicated not urine. Indicate anything beyond that? No, no. It stayed. It stayed in its lane. <laughs> stayed in the watery lane. In the watery lane. Yeah. Uh, so there wasn't a lot of nuance when it came to the still suit, uh, or maybe there was. <laughs> um, yeah, I think for me, if a still suit was real, it's such a neat idea. Um, <laughs> I kind of mean this is a joke, but I also mean it a little bit real. I would wear a still suit to a theater to watch Dune Part One. Uh, because I have a small bladder, uh, and like when we see long movies, I have to plan. Like I didn't drink water for like eight hours before we saw Avengers Endgame because I just didn't want to risk it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had anxiety while we're watching No Time to Die because it's like, did I stop drinking water soon enough? Because uh, I hate going to the bathroom during a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so. We got to watch uh, Dune Part 1 at home, but it's so big and so beautiful. I would love to see it in the theater. And if I was wearing a still suit, I wouldn't have to worry about anything. There we go. And it would be so appropriate. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Uh, do you want to talk about Paul? Sure. Paul Atreides. Sure. One of the... Let's talk about Paul. Okay. Uh, so here, here are some thoughts about Paul that I'm curious to get your thoughts on. So I, we talked about how he starts out. He's under you know so much pressure in this adaptation really... I think lets you feel it, right? Because uh, he's meant to be so many things. He's being trained by multiple mentors to be a fighter, a leader, a mentat. Again, whole thing. Uh, he's trained by his mother in these heightened powers of the Bene Gesserit. Uh, some also hope and believe he will be a messiah figure known as a Quatz Hadrak. I am not pronouncing that right, but I didn't look it up either. Uh, this is just like, there's such huge, like, you have to get into a good college energy times a million mm-hmm. <laughs> for Paul Atreides. Did you find that pressure compelling? Uh, did you, was that a big part of the story to you? Mm. I think in the moment, yes, but in the thinking about it after the fact, not as much just because of where my brain has or hasn't been. But absolutely, I mean, it's kind of like, it's like the college thing if one person gets to go to college. Yeah. Like, are you the one who gets to go to college? <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I feel like it was um it was it was um it was shown really well and brought to me it brought me into it because it was both there and you felt the stress and the pressure um but also also you felt it not be there sometimes. Yeah. Which I feel is such a a more realistic approach because even when you have really weighty things going on or 10 million things going on every once in a while there's those moments where you're just doing something else or thinking about something else or you're thinking about the 11th things that you can't think (laughs) about the other 10 and i and i liked that moment of it i feel like that almost brought me into the um the weight and the burden of all of it more yeah yeah that that makes a ton of sense um i just i really like the focus on it of those moments where you got to see that he was you know, he's still young and he's supposed to be all these things. He doesn't really want to be a leader, but his dad's pretty cool about it. He gets pretty angry uh, with his mom of like, you know, I, I, I don't want to just be indoctrinated into what I'm supposed to believe, you know, uh, on top of uh, maybe you're a messiah. <laughs> so get it right. <laughs> what even does that mean? Uh, so for me, there's obviously all sorts of things going on that, uh, you know, not unique to Dune about chosen one narratives. Fascinating things. I would argue problematic things. I think everything I understand that Dune novels uh, wrestle with the problematic nature of Mm -hmm. those kind of narratives. Um, Again, not an expert on that. But for me, I think I found it compelling almost just as a, um, this is a big science fiction fantasy story, but it can make relate to your life. And not all of us are lucky enough to be born into a place of, power and privilege where we have a bunch of mentors and parents who all want us to be a thing and give us resources to be that thing. But I think we all feel that pressure of what do I want to be? What what am I expected to be? Yeah, I think especially that one, the what am I expected to be? Yeah, I think it's really powerful from that perspective of even just like the baggage of culture of like, I am expected to dress like this. I'm expected to present this on social media. I'm expected to act this way at work. Uh, I'm expected to <laughs> smile more in this photo, you know, all those kind of things. I think then it makes it kind of this this uh, film in particular kind of a cathartic journey when obviously obviously it's traumatic that he's going through these visions. But it this idea that he is connecting to something different and basically everybody's saying, here are the seven ways you should go. And he goes, um, I'm going over there. And, you know, again, with that guidance from his dad, like by going over there, maybe you'll end up mm-hmm. where you're meant to be kind of thing. Uh, but I think it, for me, it is it's about choice mm-hmm. then of it's not just about you were born into all these roles. You're being trained for them. It's so about him making an active choice of like, I don't know where this path will lead me, but I know that's where I want to go. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. As opposed to just acting without thinking because you've been told after you take this step, this is the direction you go next. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you can feel him really sort of stepping into that towards the end of the film when he is choosing, mm-hmm. you know, to engage in the, the Freeman rituals and he is choosing how to handle them, you mm-hmm. know, and and saying no to his mother and saying, no, this is what I want to do, mm-hmm. you know. So I, I thought that was really powerful and interesting. I also want to uh, be sure to talk to you about, I believe, uh, the Gom Jabbar test. I think I'm saying that right, but I could be wrong. So that's one of the most famous scenes in Dune. That's the scene where uh, Paul is uh, asked to stick his hand in a box of pain while the Reverend Mother uh, holds a gomjabar or poisoned needle to his neck. And to calm himself, Paul recites the litany against fear. 
that litany is, I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past me, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. Uh, so, what do you think about that quote? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it's pretty great. Yeah, there, end of story. So this is, um, but can I share a thing that I interpreted differently, incorrectly perhaps? Yeah. Um, because wasn't his mother also, was she also muttering to herself the litany of fear? Yes, or, she was. Okay. And so I was reading it as that there is some sort of almost like, telekinesis between the two of them yeah that she was trying to get her son through this right yeah uh, yeah i mean for me i think it's one of those uh things of of again not being a dune expert i don't know if that's supposed to be telepathic but yeah. I, emotionally it felt like she knows this is that he is being tested early and she wants to get him through this yeah they've worked on this <laughs> yeah and maybe it's just the giving power and yes telepathic sorry not telekinesis <laughs> Yeah, she. I don't think she. Yeah, she wasn't moving his lips, was she? <laughs> she was not. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I and I don't. I don't have a need for that to even have an answer. I. I love the idea of, is it, going back and forth, or is you know, him probably knowing that that's what she's doing out there, and just that thought of somebody else, thinking you know, being there for you and having strength strength for you, giving you the strength as well. Yeah, sensing sensing that that strength yeah yeah or assuming yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah it's such a visceral uh moment in scene and, and i think very similar in both the lynch film okay and, and this film um and the reverend mother you know putting it as this idea of trying to prove that you are in control because your natural instinct is to pull away from pain yeah but if you do you die yeah uh, because you stick yourself with the needle so there's that element to it that's really fascinating that is a that is about kind of control <laughs> versus instinct mm-hmm. and there's lots of parts later in the film where it is i feel like it's it's paul listening to instinct rather than rigid control yeah but this is being presented is sort of the, the opposite to me mm-hmm. which i find fascinating uh th- these lines are some of the lines that i have heard fellow nerds say a million times about a million things i've heard him say it about eating a burrito uh so it was fun for me to see it again in the context of the film. But what I wanted to ask you in particular about this is there's this that I this idea of overcoming fear, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that fear is something that uh, can control us, and it is very hard to, to face a fear and say this is just fear. I don't need to react to it. I can let it pass through me, you know, and and I will, you know, achieve some higher level of enlightenment by not giving in to my fear. So what in life makes you want to recite the litany against fear for yourself? Oh my gosh. (laughs) Put me on the spot. Goodness. Um, Wow. While I'm thinking about that, I'm just going to say another thing that there's a line in there that I really liked. And as I I think that this probably is one of those things that I'd heard and just didn't realize that I'd heard, but the line about after it is, past seeing its path or something like that yeah and when it has gone past i will turn the inner eye to see its path where the fear has gone there will be nothing only i will remain yeah i i just found that to that caught my attention actually in the film as well i was just like oh what an interesting idea um yeah that still didn't buy me enough time to actually come up with i mean there's so many things i feel but i also feel like i don't really want to waste well, it on something let, let me let me ask you about that about yeah. 
So there, there's lots of melodramatic ways to go with the fear, and, and just like in sort of deep themes, this is one of the things that is like, yes, that th- this is not unique to <laughs> uh, Frank Herbert or George Lucas, but this is one of the things of like that that Star Wars is very much about. It's Yoda's famous speech about fear leading to anger, anger leading to hate, hate leading to suffering, and Anakin's fall coming entirely because he is afraid of something that might happen, and he it gives into that mind killer of fear. Uh, it, and it's the little death that does bring total obliteration to him because he gives in to just fear. Yeah. Um, so there, it's always powerful to me from that perspective. But I, I think of, when, when I think about these big ideas of fear, sometimes I think that we can always interpret them very literal of like, what if you were in a room with a bear? <laughs> Would you let fear pass through you? Like, that's concern because a bear might kill you. Right. Fear, like this kind of fear, I think I've experienced, like, say, performing. Mm. Right. When maybe the real, the pressure's on for lots of reasons, you're a little, you haven't had enough rehearsal. Uh, there's a critic, maybe there's people that you really care about in the audience. You know, you, you made a mistake in rehearsal, and you might screw it up on stage. And if you let that fear be the mind killer, you are going to make that mistake. But if you let it pass through you, so you're just like, I'm I'm just being in the moment. I'm just being me. Mm-hmm that's where that that quote makes like some sort of like soulful sense to me of like I let it pass through me and I watch it go and like you know I've had those moments on stage where like uh, backstage right before the show like I'm really having to fight fear but as soon as I get out there the fear has passed and it is just the moment it is just the audience I'm just in my body the words are flowing and it's not about hearing that voice of what if what if what if yeah and I was curious if your performance uh, experiences were similar to that ever, I mean, particularly oh. with dancing, like you can't be, you can't be in every moment. What if I stumble? Right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No. I mean, I think especially for for dancing, and I'm going to say even for some of you know some of the things that I've done that are maybe a little bit more on kind of the stage management side of this part scary, and I don't want to mess it up for other people, and I don't feel prepared, mm. but I just need to. I just need to do what I'm going to do and at the end hope it's okay. Um, but yeah, absolutely for dancing. I mean, I um, for years was in the Nutcracker and, um, you know, I was for years I was one of the snowflakes <laughs> and the snowflakes dance yeah, um, because it's a ballet and there's snow falling from the ceiling and the snow was very slippery. And there was um, a particular set of movements where there is more snow falling. And I was always terrified, like absolutely terrified that I would slip on stage, not wanting to fall, but even more than that, get injured. Right. Um, And not be able to finish that, not be able to dance my other roles in the show, not be able to finish the run of the show, you know, like, and especially in high school and not being able to dance for months at a time is a huge uh, risk. Like there are a lot of things that I didn't do because I didn't want to potentially injure myself and not be able to dance. Right. Um, and so that was be a moment where I think some days I succeeded at letting the fear go when I was on stage <laughs> and some days probably not so much. And I took those tours of days a little bit smaller because uh, when you're just up in the air <laughs> and you're landing and point shoes are slippery, can be, especially yeah. when they're landing on snow. So that's actually, um, that is a great example of where the days where I had it, that was probably great. And other days I could have used it a little bit more. Yeah. And that's something where you're, where there's, sounds like there's a lot of what if conceptual fear, but also like real practical fear. 
Yeah. Because you could slip. <laughs> and I think also I knew people who had slipped and twisted their ankles on like doing that exact thing at that yeah. exact moment. So there is that it's both hypothetical, but also it's real. Yeah, absolutely. That's fascinating. Um, I think for me, it, like there's definitely some times of just uh, starting a new project. I kind of jokingly say that I would recite the litany against fear before an email, but it's not like the emails. It's the, I'm going to start a project, particularly if there are ways that it could spiral out of control. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's so much of like, your example, it has to me an element of actual concern, mm -hmm. <laughs> a physical danger to be afraid of. But then there's those emotional ones where like, you have to accept a lack of control. Yeah. And that, I, that's so much often to me what, what fear is, is going, don't let go of any control because here are the choose your own adventure of bad things that could happen when you lose control. And like, and this is so peaceful, you know, this litany mm -hmm. to say like, okay, maybe some of those concerns are valid, but also you'll just stay here rigid and, and frightened unless you let it pass through you and try to move forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So your answer to where you would recite the litany against fear is before performing in the Nutcracker. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think there are many places, but we'll use that as a specific one. <laughs> I feel like it, there's something else you're thinking of. Oh, well, I was thinking actually of things like, um, uh, honestly, like big life changes, mm. like moving to Los Angeles or oh yeah, going to graduate school in London without a place to live. Like, thing <laughs> so I'm just like, that was I'm just going to go and see what happens. So It'll impressive. Be fine. You, yeah, you just went there with a ton of luggage <laughs> and, and a hotel the faith. room for two days. The faith that you'd find a place to put it, and you did. Yep. Yeah, I look back at that, and like that. wow. I mean, like, I knew it was amazing at the time, but now, in retrospect, it's even more amazing. Yeah, and I didn't think a lot about it at the time, but I think sometimes now I think back on them, like, wow, what did I do? And I think, oh, no, that, that was really good, and I should try to read the litany of fear to myself and take more <laughs> steps, like, not necessarily suddenly changing countries, but... To take steps that otherwise fear can hold you back from. Yeah, that is great. Uh, any other litany against fear thoughts before we move on? No, no, I'm good. <laughs> no, it's a great topic. Uh, but I also do want to talk about The Voice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is funny because obviously that's a television show and what Frank Sinatra was called early in his career. Uh, so we see Paul and uh, his mother, Lady Jessica, use The Voice to command others. Uh, if you had that power, how would you use it? Oh, <laughs> oh, I'm a little afraid of that noise. <laughs> Sorry. No, that's okay. That was powerful. I got it. Wow. Yeah. Uh, in traffic, where where would you use it? Yeah. Um. Well, I got delighted at um how many places I would use it. Yeah. Yeah. In traffic. In just lots of moments in life <laughs> are you are you not wanting to uh i'll leave it at that fair enough yeah fair enough uh i think i would be most tempted to use it at airports oh, uh, like it's yeah. obviously it's tempting anytime you're frustrated or whatever but like uh airports are always for me one of those places where you know you can see some some great things in humanity you can see people you know reuniting or having a friendly casual chat but like I think I've talked about this on the podcast many times before. 
that rush to get to the gate and stand there long before you're called and block other people from being called. It's for me, it just it is like logistically frustrating in the moment, but it always frustrates me extra because it's like this is our a societal problem. This is like an example of me first. <laughs> and in a way that does nothing to get you on the plane faster. You already mm-hmm. have it. You're not going to change anything. You have your seat. <laughs> uh, but so I think maybe I would be like, I would use the voice to be like, only go when you're called. And people just think they would hear it and they would just think it is um, coming over, you know, the comms. Yeah, they would just think <laughs> it was from the, the loudspeaker. You know, so one of my specific ones that jumped into my head right away is, um, you know this because you live here with me. We live here together. <laughs> um, we have a lot of people in our neighborhood who don't like to put leashes on their dogs. Yes. And especially their small dogs. Yes. And I'm constantly worried that a dog is going to run into traffic. Or be. Or be taken by a coyote. Which is a thing. Which is a thing that happens in this neighborhood. Yep. And so I would use it to be like, put a leash on your dog. (laughs) I, I, every, every day we went for a walk, I would just like walk down the street in front of our building and be like, your dog needs a leash. Leash your chihuahua. (laughs) To the dog and be like, go stand by your person. Go stand by your human. (laughs) Yeah. It is is one of those things where you feel for a moment like anybody that you ever tried to say that to gets annoyed and treats you like you're this sort of rigid control freak. Mm -hmm. And it is so about like, yeah, no, that's there to protect the cute little doggy. Yeah. (laughs) Saying it out of care for your, your pooch. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. In not fact, that I say it to people because it does not get any, it's not usually a helpful conversation. Nope, nope. And I I don't ever say it to people, um, but I do think it, and I mean, it's entirely <laughs> for their safety that I think, like, if this were not a place where there were dangers, I wouldn't care. Yeah. You know, it's not, and that is truly what it is. And I think I think it's extra on my mind because somebody's dog the other day when I was driving home suddenly darted in front oh, of the car no. and it was a tiny little dog. And I didn't see it. Yeah. I didn't hit the dog. Let's be very clear. Like the dog was not actually that close. But I saw it after the fact and it terrified me. Yeah. So. Yeah. And we have a nice balcony. I could just stand there all day <laughs> saying, leash your poodle. <laughs> did you like the uh, the vocal effect of the weird octave jumping and it's yeah, everywhere, that voice? I did. It was really fun. It was really effective. It was really, really great. I'm going to uh, be practicing my voice, just so you know. <laughs> okay. If, if you hear me in the other room, you're like, walk more quickly. Yeah. You'll know. Do you think you can use the voice on yourself? Ooh. Do you think you could be like, stop reading social media and go to sleep? Yeah, I think that's a great idea. I'll start it on myself. I'll take my own advice. Yeah. I don't know if that's wise. But anyway, here's the, uh, <laughs> it, it was me who brought it up. I'm, I'm the bad. Uh, here is the final and most important question. Uh, the Freemen have this great walk to avoid the expected human rhythms that would bring the sandworms. Is that walk that you saw in Dune Part 1, is that good modern dance? Oh, Yeah. <laughs> absolutely that little leg sweep yeah right right yeah Yeah. how many dances have already been based on the dune walk oh yeah i mean there have been a lot of really great funny jokes i think it works really well it it, you know it's got it's a practical sci-fi thing but it's got these great themes of you know altering 
the way we think about things to work with your environment and you know yeah yeah uh, being willing to change and being this idea the contrast between like the sandworms being like i know how humans clawed around i can hear that <laughs> boom 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 brings me in the idea that you could kind of shift the way you move yeah to be in some kind of harmony uh is really cool but also pretty damn fun right right yeah like how fun to just walk in a different way or every time I'm dancing, you'd be like, I'm just making sure that the worms don't find me. Yeah, no. I mean, if we had a a, a live stage show to do uh, right now, I would I would love to have you do a <laughs> uh, uh, keep the sandworms away dance. Yeah, you're gonna do it with me. <laughs> well, that's the kind that I would be happy to, mm-hmm. uh, because then if I screw up the dance, then we could have a friend dressed as a sandworm just grab me. We've got drag it all me set. off stage. There you there go. There we go. We're all ready for when, sh- when we do shows again. <laughs> uh, so I picked out some of the ideas in this massive story. A two and a half hour movie that's only the first half of the story of the first Dune book. Uh, I picked out some fun <laughs> things to talk about that uh, meant a lot uh, to me or I'm really intrigued by. Uh, there's a lot that I left on the table, I know. Is there anything else in the movie that spoke to you that you wanted to discuss? Um, I feel like we've talked about the vast majority of it, but one thing that I thought about, actually based on something you were saying earlier that I did just want to mention as a kind of a side, not even a side thing, maybe a quick thing, maybe not, we'll find out. But we were talking about when you've got the, you've got Debbie with her can in the room of 72 people. Probably not my best uh, analogy ever, (laughs) but let's go with Debbie with her bean cans. Yeah, Can. well, we'll just go back to the people on the planet because that's actually what it's about. Okay. And and you were saying, uh, because you were saying how um, you just instinctually felt your body kind of shrivel and contract, just thinking about all of the people um, wanting things from them and coming for them and wanting to attack them. And a thing that I really appreciated, knowing nothing about this, is in, um, I just was thinking, I've been thinking about as well, so you've got this whole setup of of that world, but you don't see um, is it the the Freeman Freeman the yeah. Freeman you don't see them as the Freeman I don't know um, like you don't see them cowering down you you are introduced to them as finding a way yeah. and and I don't I don't know what else is coming but you you are introduced to them as strong and proud in what they are doing and finding a way to do what they are doing and wanting to keep doing that as opposed to um, seeing them actually under the thumb of all of these other people who are coming and taking things from their planet. Yeah. Like they're, they're pushed (laughs) to certain areas um, which we can, you know, make a lot of references to. Um, But they, but you see them being there um, very strong. Yeah. And I just I really not knowing anything about the story, but just compared to a lot of I think when I just think kind of generically about other types of situations where you see a planet that has become dominated by um, an industry trying to take something from that planet for profit. Usually the people on the planet are or most often the experiences I've had, they're portrayed as um, under the thumb of the people trying to profit. Right. And so this was really. Uh, to me, just a really fresh, a breath of fresh air to not have that um, set up. 
is a huge deal, I think, that the film starts the narrative from that perspective. Mm -hmm. Because, yes, obviously, a million things uh, uh, that one could compare it to, right? But just in terms of a narrative, when you have (laughs) uh, these big controlling uh, uh, organizations, if you start from their perspective, like, I would still, like, the, the Lynch film starts with the setup, but not from that human perspective of. Okay that of who are these people what do they want and to your great point it's you could also start the narrative from them perspective but just see them sad and cowering or you know you know captured uh but you're right we we you we start with them with agency yeah 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 exactly and to say like that's the way we're framing this story Mm -hmm. is at least initially at the beginning the Freeman uh, or Fremen are, are stuck in this, mm-hmm. but they have agency. Yeah. I mean, we still see them getting attacked and killed. It's not like they're in control. <laughs> Everything's not coming up great for them. No. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, but yeah, I just, I feel like it, it, it really puts a, it is one of the perspectives that you're offered right away as a hook into the film. And I feel like, and then because you don't really go back to see them for a while, it just, it gives it all a very interesting, um, kind of bigger perspective yeah yeah absolutely absolutely Uh, i think there there are a lot of conversations around dune in general and uh this particular film that are about representation and uh where do these ideas come from and who gets to speak about these ideas and all that kind of stuff i don't feel is super super uh the best person (laughs) to dive into all that but if i would say if people are interested uh, in more doing that there's a ton of great podcasts uh, that different people have you know with more sort of critical approaches to all those dunes real connections to heavy real world stuff Fantastic. To, to search them out if you are interested uh, in learning more uh, I do actually want to ask you about one other image yeah right toward the end there is the image of someone uh, riding a worm there is mm-hmm so I was going to ask if that made an impact on you. And I guess <laughs> I got my answer. <laughs> uh, Sarah is lost in thought. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Was it a real image or was it a dream in- image? Um, I don't remember, it, okay. to be perfectly honest okay. right now. Anyway. Interesting. Uh, I, I think I vaguely remember that. Okay. But yeah, there's your answer. <laughs> <laughs> there's my answer. All right. So I actually have a different final question. Okay. Um, the movie says Dune Part 1 at the beginning. Mm-hmm. You said, oh, Part 1 out loud. If it didn't say Part 1 and the movie just ended, how would you have felt? Oh. um, Both, I think I both would have been like, okay. And also, <laughs> that, that sounded way more like, okay, make your movie. I guess I'll see it. Uh, no, I think um, I, I don't feel like it is entirely a complete film mm-hmm. or a complete story. And yet at the same time, it kind of works. Like we see, we if you're looking at it as Paul's journey. Right. We see a section of Paul's journey. Yeah. That has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Exactly. Of, I'm nervous about going to Arrakis. Oh, I went to Arrakis. It's bonkers. I've found my path on Arrakis. I'm, I'm with these people. I see the person from my dreams. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't feel like 
but I feel like it has brought up a lot of questions that have not been answered. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. For sure. Thankfully, then, we'll have Dune Part 2. There we go. Uh, so what kind of noise can you make to sum up your interest in Dune Part 1? I'm sorry. We, you mentioned those ships very briefly, but oh, I love yeah. those ships. There, no. So that was the ships. At the, it was like the sand. Walking around yeah. the sand, uh, maybe a little bit of worm action, and then those ships. Ornithopters, but they call them thopters for short. They're the like dragonfly wing ships, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, you and I literally oohed and odd <laughs> out loud. Like, yeah. as, a, as a science fiction, fantasy, comic book junkie, I've seen millions of ships that are kind of based on animals. This one made me feel it yeah. in my gut. And I, and I really was like... Uh, I'll just watch one fly around. I don't care. And like that, the one in the storm is the wings are breaking off. Yeah. Just beautiful and weird, right? Right. And the one toward the beginning when uh, Oscar Isaac's character did get to be a pilot. Yeah. And put the wings back and, and dove, went, dove <gasps> super fast to try to save the people. Yeah. Yeah. That no, was great. Those were beautiful. So I had to include them awesome. in my some thopter. Thopter noise and my Thop, noise. Thopter noise. Okay. So uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being the lowest, 10 being the highest, uh, I know you're not like, I'm getting Dune tattoos. I'm running out and I'm going to read <laughs> all the books right now. Uh, but in terms of engaging with like this film and this cultural moment where people are discussing it, what's your obsession level? Mm. <laughs> I was going to say, I think like for this weekend and this week, maybe... I was going to say a six, but I think that's pushing it too far. I'm going to say a five. A five. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I think, uh, I know I often put myself at like a seven, but I think I'll go to like a seven. I don't think I'm, uh, I'm not a Dune expert, obviously. And I think I'm, I, maybe I'll read the book sometime. Um, but I think I'm really fascinated with the, uh, I really, really enjoyed this film, but I'm more fascinated with like the cultural moment and mm. all of the. Uh, just fascinating history of it as something that people try to adapt of the novel, of its connections to other things, of how, you know, resonant uh, these ideas are about real world stuff and in what they say about human nature and the way we uh, structure, you know, our organizations and the way, way we try to be individuals within these large organizations. There's just There's so much to be fascinated by. And I also just like, I know I have friends who are all in on Dune and love Dune. Mm -hmm. And when I was like writing up these notes, I was like, yeah, the worms and the spice. And is he the Messiah figure? And the like, it it is just really, really compelling. Mm -hmm. And so I I think my mind is kind of swirling on all all the stuff that makes it compelling. Yeah, I totally get that. Awesome. So uh, plug section, where can you be found on the old social media? You can be found on Twitter at Sarah underscore Scrimshaw. Excellent. Here are some quick plugs. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok is at Joseph Scrimshaw. You can follow Obsessed Podcast on Twitter, and Facebook is at Obsessed Podcast. You can also check out the Star Wars podcast I co-host that is called Force Center. Info on upcoming shows and comedy albums and all kind of stuff like that. You can check out my website at josephscrimshaw.com. You can also support Obsessed by backing us on Patreon. Full info on that, go to patreon.com slash josephscrimshaw. Here are our final questions. Mm -hmm. If friendly cartoon animals could help you with any life task, what would you want them to help with? Ooh, um, I always say washing dishes, so I feel like I should say something else. Um, Tidying. Just general tidying? Yeah. Everywhere? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's such a, like, Snow White, right? She's the one who had... I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. 
I would like um, cartoon pandas, by the way. <laughs> okay, so now I'm just imagining you walking through life with some happy cartoon pandas bouncing behind you and uh, filing away receipts. Yep, sounds great to me. <laughs> uh, and if you could live on a planet that was all one Earth environment, what environment would you want the planet to be? Forest. Forest, I thought so. Yeah. It all comes back to the trees. Final question, as always, is what is happiness? Happiness is living in a giant forest. <laughs> it sure With is. With some chop, chop, what are they called? Thopters. Thopters. <laughs> With a thopter for when you need to go somewhere else. <laughs> yes, I want to live on forest planet uh, with thopters and have action figures of all that stuff for sure. Sounds good. That would be happiness to me. And then the cartoon pandas, pandas would, would put my toys away. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Yeah, just don't let them open the packages that aren't supposed to be opened. <laughs> yeah, man, if the if the cartoon pandas open my packages, I will I will let the fear pass through me then. <laughs> Thank it you. All comes full circle. It does. It does. Thank you all so much for listening. That is our podcast. You've been listening to Obsessed. Joseph Scrimshaw and his guest shared some stories with the rest. Rate five stars if you're impressed. So one of the things that's been really fun for people to discuss on this round of Dune being in the, the cultural zeitgeist is that there's a character named Duncan Idaho, which is a really fun name. If you found out that uh, Indiana Jones was going to meet Duncan Idaho, would you be excited? <laughs> yes, especially if they meet in like a state in between. Like <laughs> they're going to meet in Nebraska. 